Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trent and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. We're live, so we can keep talking about beer, because that's pretty much what we do. Uh, Good evening, everyone who's watching this live on Facebook. I'm Rob Orson with the Emerging Revolutionary War. Uh, Hopefully, you guys have had a good weekend, and you have a nice beverage in your hand. Uh, tonight, we are talking about everything Daniel Morgan. Uh, so I think if you are a history buff or follower of American history, Daniel Morgan probably rings a, a name that probably uh, you will recognize. Uh, tonight, I'm joined by two good friends of mine, uh, Travis Shaw from the Virginia Piedmont Heritage Area. Travis, I did it. I got the name right. Uh, I'm still working on it, too, man. <laughs> I, I practiced. I practiced. I practiced. But uh Travis is the uh, uh, events and special events program coordinator, and he wears many hats over there. So uh, Travis has also got a deep knowledge of the American Revolution, and um, he'll, he's been with us before. Travis, you're kind of like my go-to guy for loyalists. I'll have to say that. If there's anything <laughs> British, I go to Travis. So, But tonight we're going to talk about Daniel Morgan. Uh, and then also have uh, Nathan Stalvey, who's executive director of the Clark County Historical Association. Um, which has some direct ties to Daniel Morgan, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Nathan must be in a great mood. He's got his uh, Dodgers jersey there over his shoulder. Dodgers are the best team in the shortened season so far. So unlike my Nats, you will not be in the postseason. Uh, well, all I can say is that we've been the best team for many years, <laughs> and what have we got to show for it? Not that's much. Right. Not much. Not much, but that's all right. So – uh, for those watching, if you have questions, just pop them in the chat. I uh, will keep an eye on that over here on this other computer. Uh, so just to get us started, I have to say a couple of weeks ago, I was at a program that Virginia Piedmont and Clark County did at Burwell Morgan Mill. And these two gentlemen did a great presentation on Daniel Morgan. So I was sitting there going, how can I steal this presentation for your ERW? So basically, I just was very honest about it. And just, hey, how about you guys jump online with us? Let's talk about Daniel Morgan. Um, so with that said... Um, I'm going to start with you, Travis, since you're in my top left corner. What uh, is it about Daniel Morgan that interests you the most that got you so interested in studying his life? Oh, man. Um, Daniel Morgan, to me, is the kind of quintessential American self-made man. Uh, Unlike 
a lot of his contemporaries, you know, people like Washington, Jefferson, people that are, are kind of more popularly known, you know, he really started with nothing. He's the son of immigrants. He walks to the Shenandoah Valley as a teenager with the clothes on his back. He's illiterate. And just through kind of hard work and ambition and just being a tough SOB, he manages to not only, you know, have this incredible military legacy during the revolution, um, but a legacy of kind of establishing himself as, you know, one of the movers and shakers politically, economically, socially in the Shenandoah Valley. And I just find that life to be absolutely fascinating. You know, there's so many times where he puts his body on the line um, for, for what he believes in. And it's really a remarkable, remarkable life. And I know Nate's going to get into a lot of that stuff too. So, so Mr. Stalvey, being, being, being from South Carolina, I'm sure Morgan has uh, some uh, reverence to you being, uh, you know, very important in South Carolina history. Does that one of the reasons why you got interested, Morgan, or is it because of where you work? It's more because of where I work. I mean, that's mm -hmm. part of it is, yes, the, the Battle of Cowpens, it's just it's revered down there, but in my home state of South Carolina, but it's more so when you do a deeper study, it's a lot of what Travis said, this is a self-made man and everybody loves a rags to riches story. Imagine how hard it is in the 21st century to come from rags to riches. Now, imagine what it was like in the 18th century. It's almost unheard of. You just don't, you're either born into it, married into it, or you never got into it. And he did work his way up through just sheer toughness and just really just inspiring a lot of those people around him, inspiring a lot of the right people around him. He took notice like, hey, this, I think this is the guy we want on our side. Um, he was, he was a man's man of the 18th century and he, he fought tooth and nail to blood, sweat and tears for what he believed in. And this is a guy, like Travis said, he walked into the Shenandoah Valley as a teenager, nothing but the clothes on his back, walked all the way from New Jersey. And by the time he died, he had 125,000 acres of land and he was in Congress. He was a brigadier general. I mean, this, this guy went from literally nothing to something. Yeah. And I think that um, you mentioned one thing that I think a lot of people would be surprised by who are just casual fans of Morgan is he's not from Virginia. I mean, he is from New Jersey. And if my friend Drew Gruber is watching, he'd be very proud to hear that he was from New Jersey. Drew's a big Jersey fan himself. But uh, it's interesting that, you know, people always assume he's from Winchester or the Valley or somewhere in the Virginia, Western Virginia area, but he's really from New Jersey. Um, Nathan, I'll keep it with you for a second. What about, um, tell me a little bit about his early life before the war about, I know there's not a whole lot known, but what do we know about Morgan uh, before the American Revolution? Well, he was, what we know about him is that he worked his way up. I mean, he came into Winchester, came to the Valley, took some odd jobs. He, he was, he, he drove a wagon, you know, he was a, he was a wagoner. He was a teamster. That was where he got his start. Um, you know, and he was very good at it when he found something that when he started getting into, it, he became very, very good at it. And when people are thinking about Daniel Morgan, they think, oh, he was in the French and Indian war. Well, actually he wasn't a soldier. He was, he was basically driving the wagon. Um, he was very rough. Uh, some words that were used to describe, Benjamin Barry was one of his neighbors at one point. Some of the words used to describe what he was often caught doing, gaming, drinking, quarreling, and fighting. Those are basically his four strongest qualities in his young life and for most of his life, but especially in his young life. Uh, so many tavern brawls. He loved to drink. He loved to fight 
physically for everything. Yeah. So, so that's a lot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. Some of his early days, he, yeah, he removed stumps. He was a foreman at a sawmill as well, which later we'll, when we talk about later, his later life, that's actually going to be, it's actually going to be tied into what he's doing later in life as well. Um, he also started, but as that wagoner, when he was young, he started making those connections. He was making those wagon drives from the Valley to Alexandria to Fredericksburg to the Tidewater region and all the stops in between. He was, you know, he started making those connections that would serve him well later. Yeah. And I think just kind of building on that, you know, he starts out driving a wagon, but pretty soon he ends up kind of owning his own company that, you know, he, he goes from the wagon driver to the guy who's running all the mm -hmm. wagons, mm -hmm. um, which I think, again, speaks to that ambition that he has. You know, he's not content just to live comfortably. He really, he, as he's making these connections in the Tidewater, as he's meeting these planters and people he's working for in the area, he's seeing how they live. And he's seeing how, you know, climbing social rank in Virginia isn't just necessarily about the money you have, but it's about who you're connected to. It's about land. It's about, um, you know, the finer things, material clothing and furniture and things that you have, um, all these kind of outward displays of wealth. And I think as a young man, you can definitely see that. I know Nate loves to tell the story about his, his sock obsession, right, Nate? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. So when he was starting to make money running those wagons, he, a lot of, if you look back at the records of items that he bought from the ledgers of the uh, merchant store in Winchester, he was obsessed with socks. I mean, over and over and over. This guy was massively obsessed with socks. He wanted to look good. He wanted to feel good. He wanted to portray himself as more than he was. He wanted to be part of that upper level of society. And speaking of his younger days, I do also want to point out as prior to him being 17 years old, there is little to nothing that people know about him. He never spoke about his younger days. He rarely spoke about his parents. He, in later in life, I mean, just to talk about his past was something he never did. And on his, I remember on his deathbed and the doctor would look, examine him and say, hey, where did you get that broken toe? Where did you get this? And oh, that got into a bar fight when I was younger and just left it at that. So he, so trying to find more information about him in his, as a youth is, is impossible, basically. And I almost wonder if that's part of this social climb. You know, he didn't necessarily want to talk about <laughs> the, the early rough and tumble days um, because, right. you know, despite this frontier persona that we think of him as, you know, he wanted to portray himself as, as someone of the higher sort. So, you know, we know we know mostly about his, you know, his military accomplishments during the American Revolution. What before the revolution trained him for that? Like, where is he getting that experience? You know, he comes from New Jersey. You guys talk about, you know, uh, you know, he ran wagons, but that doesn't really lead to someone who is considered one of the better, you know, military commanders in the war. Where does he get that experience? Oh, I was gonna say. Well, he. Well, I, I know Travis is more of our military guy. I'm more of the social history guy. But uh, I, I would defer to Travis okay. on that, and I'll pick up from from you there. So, so his first military experience is going to come um, very early on in the French and Indian War, as part of General Braddock's failed attempt to take Fort Duquesne. You know, the French fort at uh, the site of modern Pittsburgh. And as Nathan said earlier, he's not a soldier in this expedition. He's a wagoner. So he's hauling supplies for the British Army. 
this is going to give him a taste of military discipline. Uh, at one point, he strikes a British officer, and as punishment dictates, he's given 500 lashes as a punishment. And this is one of those formative experiences, I think, for, for Morgan, because he talks about it uh, throughout the rest of his life. But he, as he's being whipped, as he's being punished, you know, he doesn't lose consciousness. He says he counts every lash, and supposedly the British only gave him 499. So this kind of joke that he always trots out later in life is that the king always owed him one more. Um, I think that speaks to his his physical stamina, but certainly his courage as well. Um, kind of this rebellious spirit that he has. Um, the, the officer that he struck supposedly was so impressed by his fortitude that he actually apologized to Morgan later. Um, I don't know if that's apocryphal or not, but um, it certainly made an impression on Morgan and those around him. Um, he's gonna get a little bit more military experience uh, after his wagoning days. He joins a, a ranging company uh, commanded by John Ashby. And uh, if you go through Washington's records, uh, Washington was not super fond of John Ashby's ranging company. Um, these guys did not spend a lot of time ranging out on the frontier, fighting Indian raids and things no, like that. Um, they were doing more uh, more this, of this, right? Lots of this. <laughs> it was it was also that was Washington's biggest pet peeve was that Ashby would order far more rum than was allotted for his men and uh, they spent most of their time just getting drunk they did not do a lot of ranging but ashby yeah. and morgan were i mean they were they were like this you know they, they were really tight were. and and uh you know one of the things that i always think about is you know morgan in the revolution he's so strict about discipline and expecting discipline out of his men which is the complete opposite of ashby um but uh, Morgan does get wounded uh, during a skirmish on the frontier when he's with Ashby's company. He's actually shot um, through the neck and the bullet exits the front of his face. Mm -hmm. um, so if you ever see a portrait of Morgan or the statue of Morgan that's in Winchester, you'll see there's a scar on his upper lip. And that's going to be the first of many, many, many wounds that uh, Daniel Morgan is going to suffer uh, on the line of fire. But uh, not... Not the most remarkable military career uh, up through the French and Indian War. Yeah, I think that's always been one of the uh, confusing parts for me is, you know, knowing what you guys have been talking about, how he transitions from from that to what we know him to be a Calpin. Well, Saratoga first. Well, before Saratoga, we, we're, we're going to go into Quebec in a second. But, you know, Saratoga and, uh, you know, Calpins, where he's considered, you know, you know, him and Benedict Arnold are considered one of the better commanders in the field, especially at Saratoga. So it's just interesting how he doesn't really have that professional training or that, you know, uh, it, it's kind of just, you know, he learns it on the fly as he's, as he's, you know, put in these situations. Um, so Travis, I'm going to go to you on this one uh, because I want you to talk about one of my favorite topics. Uh, it's probably, you're the expert on it, in my opinion, is the Beeline March. Oh, very yeah. beginning of the war when Daniel Morgan really makes a name for himself right at the beginning. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so Morgan's going to take part in two events in 1775 that I think really establish him as, as a legend, in my mind at least. And the first of those is going to be the Beeline March. In June of 1775, Congress calls for uh, rifle companies to be formed in Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia. These are the first Southern troops that are going to be rushed up to, to Boston to, to assist Washington and the New England troops up there. And Morgan is chosen 
by the Committee of Safety in Winchester to command one of these companies. So he, uh, over the course of about a month, he assembles uh, 96, 98 men, almost 100 men. Um, and these are mostly men from the valley. Um, you know, there's a lot of kind of frontier type men. Um, these guys are armed with rifles. They're kind of known as crack shots. And the, the remarkable thing is when they leave to march to Boston, that they are going to march from Winchester, Virginia to the Continental Army in Cambridge, about 500, 600 miles, I mean, hundreds of miles. They're going to do it in 21 days. So three Crazy. weeks, they are going to cover the distance from Winchester to, to Cambridge. And the, the other Virginia Rifle Company under uh, Hugh Stevenson, the two Maryland companies, they will do the same thing and will all arrive within a few days of one another. And I mean, if you think about that, it's, you know, we read about soldiers marching 25 miles a day or 30 miles a day, but not doing that every day for three weeks straight. I mean, I think that's what's really remarkable is these guys really, they call it the beeline march because these guys are booking it as fast as they can to get there. Um, and, you know, they certainly cause quite a stir when they arrive. Right. Um, and, and of course, really kind of cementing that Continental Army with uh, soldiers from not just New England states and Mid-Atlantic, but, you know, Virginia being one of the southern colonies and Maryland, too, for that matter, at, the, at that time considered a southern colony, um, cementing that continental image that George was trying to create with not just an army of New England men, but an army of all the colonies to kind of create this new nation as it was forming. Um, so probably probably important for Washington as well to have that to have some Virginians there with him to kind of so he can really you know try to cement that. Um, so so Nathan, uh, we haven't really talked a little bit about his family life at this point. Um, we got tons of military to talk about, yeah. but uh, you know I don't know a whole lot about Morgan's personal life. You know, was he married? Did he have kids? Um, you know, I, I know we talked about this at the mill when you did your, did your presentation a few weeks ago, but if you can kind of share some uh, insights into his family. Well, Morgan is sort of, when it comes to family life, one of the things that I think about, I don't know if it, either of you have seen the movie Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood, yes. but I see a lot of Daniel Morgan in that character. Morgan was very rough. He loved to party. He loved to fight. He loved to drink. He loved the ladies. He would often in that ledger uh, at the merchant in Winchester, he was often buying gifts for a lot of the ladies. Well, one in particular uh, warmed his heart, and suddenly he was just he was smitten and was by her side. Uh, they had two daughters together, and he was still he still it didn't he didn't exactly give up his rough and tumble ways. But when he was called upon for those rough and tumble ways, he stepped forward. Like when he was asked about it, he would not go out to the bars anymore and start fights <laughs> after he was married. But when he would say, hey, we have a rebellion we need you to help with, or we have we have a battle that we need you to attend to, he gave it everything, his whole body into it. But, you know, that was his life, his family. And then, you know, he bought, he and his family bought some properties in Clark County, which are still around. His two daughters married off, one to a son-in-law that he basically treated as a son and another to a son-in-law that I think he just wished dropped dead. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of his family life was, he did get to see, surprisingly enough, even though we hear about all the battles he took part in, Saratoga, he, him being captured in Quebec, Cowpens, and you think of the distances there. He did have to take quite a bit of time off in those battles and return home to his wife. Um, you know, at that one point, he came back to his wife 
and he had after the battle of cowpens he was dealing with piles sciatica and fever and as much as he didn't want to come back he his wife was like just sat there and took care of him until really the war was over yeah his health is a constant issue um throughout the war i mean you know um studying camden you know really gates wanted him to go with him uh to, to, to take command, be, be one of his commanders in his army in North Carolina and actually met there at Barry's Ferry and, and convinced Morgan to rejoin the Continental Army. Um, a lot of it's because of, you know, uh, Morgan not very happy with Congress, not giving him what he thought was his due, due rank. And Gates did convince him to come back. Unfortunately, his health delayed him. And of course, you know, Morgan's not allowed to get, doesn't get to Gates in time. So Camden's fault. Gates gets, you know, loses command. So Morgan basically becomes, uh, you know, uh, one of Nathaniel Green's, uh, you know, favorite commanders as well. So yeah. people always, the people in Camden always at, you know, always wonder what if Morgan was at Camden. Ooh, and I just said, different story. I don't know. I think it would have been just one more uh, morally wounded American officer on the field. I don't know. <laughs> but, the way he, anyways. I mean, I mean, Nathaniel Green was asking Morgan for advice after yes. that. I mean, when Morgan was coming, when Morgan had to come back to Winchester after his, uh, after being sick, after Cowpens, Green says, hey, you know, I need some advice. What do you do? And his first bit of advice was, if any man runs, shoot them. You know, if anybody tries to desert, just, just shoot them. Um, so yeah, he's, yeah, <laughs> very direct. <laughs> Very direct. Um, so Travis, after the Beeline March, um, Travis and I have been talking about Quebec off and on here, um, uh, you know, text messages and chats. Uh, Morgan had Morgan and Virginians play a pretty significant role in Arnold's march. Can you just kind of give a quick summary of sure. of that movement, which is very much? Yeah, I think I think a lot of people who study the war don't realize how early in the war that really is. I mean, we're talking 1775 and. You know, we're invading the Canadian colonies, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, so Morgan and his company arrive in Cambridge in August of 1775. By September, they're already being sent off on uh, what is going to be a, a secret expedition to take Quebec from the British. Um, and anyone who's ever been to Quebec, it's, you know, very strategic city. It controls the St. Lawrence River. It's a huge fortified city, so it's a tough nut to crack. Um, so they're going to send one group of continental troops under Richard Montgomery up through Lake Champlain and up the St. Lawrence, or I guess down the St. Lawrence. And Morgan is going to be part of an expedition led by Benedict Arnold. And their job is to cross what is now the state of Maine. Um, basically, there's no roads. There's no tracks through the forest. They've got to cut their way across the Maine wilderness and, and attack Quebec that way. And it's really, I, I think it's one of the most fascinating campaigns of the war. It's a really bad time for Morgan and his men. Um, you know, their, their maps are very inaccurate. The distance they have to cover is much longer than they've anticipated. Uh, the men, you know, they get caught in bad weather. They're marching through Maine in like late October. Well, it starts to snow in Maine in late October. Um, they get hit by a hurricane. Some of the troops turn back. They take rations with them. Men lose weapons. So they set out with 1,100, around 1,100 men. And by the time Arnold and Morgan reach Quebec, they're down to 600 men. So it's a grueling, grueling march. Um, but one of the things that's, again, remarkable about this is Morgan and his company were fresh off the Beeline March. They're leading the way through this, through the main wilderness. And they're going to take the lead 
in the eventual assault on Quebec. Um, this happens on, on New Year's Eve in a howling blizzard. And to, to take the town, they've actually got to fight house to house through the lower town. They've got to cross barricades and it is an absolute nightmare. Um, Arnold falls very quickly. Um, he's wounded in the leg. And so Morgan actually takes command of that prong of the attack. And he's going to lead from the front. Um, at one point, he actually shoots a, a Royal Navy officer in the head who, who's demanding his surrender. Um, he scales a barricade and falls down the other side onto a British cannon, which is going to lead to the sciatica you mentioned. You know, he basically fractures his back in the fighting. Uh, but for hours and hours until they're finally surrounded, Morgan and his men are going to fight like the house to house, hand to hand, tooth and nail to try and take Quebec. Uh, and they're, they're not successful. But again, this is another another part of the legend of Daniel Morgan is, you know, he's there in the front uh, with with these rough and tumble Virginia riflemen and, you know, even though it's an unsuccessful attack, it's certainly getting a lot of attention. Uh, amongst the Continental Army Command and and amongst the wider population. So I'm going to ask you guys kind of a, a, a deep question. It's not really focused on Morgan, but so much. But this is something I've been uh, I read about Quebec, um, thinking about these Virginians in Canada in 1775. What do you guys think is the motivation there? Right, like what what motivates these Virginians to make the Beeline March, which I think could be a different motivation than what or maybe it's the same motivation that gets them to go to Maine um you know suffer as Travis Travis really went over it quickly but I mean the march to Maine march through Maine to Quebec is pretty horrific um and you know these Virginians are from the valley mostly but they're not from you know new uh that far north so they have to experience what is what do you guys think is the motivation not just for the men but Morgan himself is it a sense of duty or he's not being paid a whole lot correct no, no, he's not. I, I think I think a lot of it is that for Morgan, I think it's a lot of duty. Like he's being called upon by people he sees as superiors, people that he some people he strives to want to be in their circles. And they see and respect him for who he is as the commander, as a leader of men. And they say, we've got a tough assignment. Let's get one of our toughest guys out there to lead this charge. So for him, I think it's a sense of duty. And that could also very well be the reason for a lot of the other Virginians that go up there. Um, I think it could be a combination of factors. I think it's a combination of, did they believe that this could make the war end quickly? Did this, if we march up there quickly and we turn the tide of this war, this thing will end. And I think that's probably the biggest motivation for the men. So they wanted the faster they got up there, the faster they could get it done and the faster this war could be over. Because I mean, let's face it, these men were, everybody was being hurt especially you know from an economical standpoint right what was going on with with this war i i agree with nate on on everything he said and i would just like to add i think you know we talk a lot about sectional rivalry sectional differences in the 19th century but that absolutely exists in the 18th century and one of the things you get a sense of when when the virginians first arrive the southerners come into the camp is a lot of these New Englanders have never seen a Southerner. A lot of these Southerners have never seen a New Englander. And there's a lot of brawling back and forth between these groups. So I think a part of it for the average guy is probably showing how tough you are. You know, you're yeah. marching with a bunch of guys from Connecticut, Massachusetts, you know, like shopkeepers and fishermen and stuff like that. And you've got a reputation for being 
a tough frontiersman, you've got to prove it. And I think for a lot of them, there, there's maybe a sense of pride in, in who they are and what they've already accomplished. And it could also be, I mean, was there this, I mean, yes, the tough Virginia frontiersman, but could there also be this, I don't know, stereotype that, oh, Virginia, this is where all the gentry and elite and all the tobacco farms are. The, who, they, who do these people think they are? They don't know what tough is. Like, we know what tough is. We're right there on the Canadian border. So, yeah. I don't know. It could be a mix of both. And, you know, the war in 1775 is very different than the war will become later on. You know, yes. 75, we, we are in the middle of that rage military. Like, everybody yeah. is signing up. I mean, you look at trying to recruit guys in the Continental Army in 78, 79, 80. Like, you're not yeah. going to get the enthusiasm that you no. had in 1775. Mm -hmm. so. That's, That's a good point. I just wanted to throw that out there because, you know, as I'm reading um, – about the Quebec campaign, it's like, what what are these guys doing up there? Right? Like it's a long way from home. <laughs> I mean, it's not like they're defending home up there, right? So uh it's always interesting to study in any war motivations of soldiers. And of course, there's not one answer for that because there's multiple people. So but, one of the great things about that campaign though is out of all the Revolutionary War campaigns, there's a ton of diaries from that expedition um a surprising number um there's a great book called it was voices from the wilderness is that it that talks mm -hmm. about the mm -hmm. there's a real wealth of of information written by the soldiers who took part in that campaign so definitely worth looking into so what happens to morgan he's captured then captured. what i mean how long how long is he in captivity he's not officially exchanged until january of 77 so he wow. is um He's going to spend a few months as a prisoner, and then he, he's kind of paroled and, and not officially exchanged uh, for almost a year. And then he's during this time, he's actually offered command of a new Virginia regiment, the 11th Virginia, which is being raised kind of in Nate's neck of the woods around Winchester, Berryville, um, that, that part of, of the state. Yeah, we actually have a uh, flag at the Borough Morgan Mill. We have the uh, Morgan's Rifleman's uh, flag of that regiment hanging out front of our mill there. And that's a that's a great segue. Let's talk about the Rifleman. There's a let you know. There's so much mythology around the the, the Rifleman. Um, of course, they're not all from Virginia. I realize that, though. I am a Virginian, as I you know, but they are not all from Virginia. So, and Travis did a good talk about this at the mill a few weeks ago about you know the benefit of of these rifles. So, um, if you guys can talk about you know the benefit of the Rifleman and also how you know they could you know be used properly and you could you wouldn't use them at, at all times on, on any part of the battlefield right um so in the 18th century the standard weapon is a smoothbore musket um it what it lacks it lacks in accuracy a, a musket is accurate to 150 yards or so but what it will make up for in is speed with a paper cartridge you can load and fire that thing three four times a minute the rifle is the exact opposite. Um, because of the rifling in the barrel, um, much, much more accurate. There's accounts of, of some of Morgan's guys hitting targets 250, 300, 350 yards. Um, but because of the way in which you, you load the, the weapon and you really have to seat that ball very well into the rifling, uh, it's much slower to load. Um, you're talking maybe one shot a minute, maybe less as it becomes more and more fouled with powder. So that's a huge setback. Um, also, most rifles cannot mount a bayonet, which means if you're in close range combat, you're done for. So, um, you know, one of the lessons these riflemen will learn 
is, you know, at Fort Washington in November of 1775, um, the, the remaining Maryland and Virginia riflemen get overwhelmed by the British and Hessians because they just can't keep up the rate of fire that's necessary, you know. Uh, so there are a lot of drawbacks, and that's something that Morgan and his men are really going to figure out during the war and figure out how to use this weapon um, in a way that maximizes its advantages while minimizing the, uh, the drawbacks to it. And we can definitely get into that when we talk about the Battle of Saratoga, because I think that's really where, where this idea kind of crystallizes. So how does Morgan get attached to the riflemen, though? Like, you know, it's almost like a synonymous thing these days when you when you study American Revolution. You think Daniel Morgan, you think the riflemen. Um, but like, how did he, you know, that wasn't something, obviously, you know, uh, when he's in the beginning of the war really doing. How does he get attached to the to to, to lead riflemen companies? So he leads his rifle company. You know, we talked about them going to, to Boston mm -hmm. and to Quebec. Um, after giving command of the 11th Virginia, he's basically set aside for a special duty, and he's given command of a provisional corps. Um, these are hand-picked men. They're riflemen from Maryland, Virginia, Pennsylvania, um, light infantrymen, and this is a special assignment for Morgan and for the men who are kind of picked out of their regiments for duty in this provisional corps, and that's the corps he's going to take to Saratoga, to the Northern Army. So, um, you know, that's really, I think, the moment where he becomes synonymous with being the American light infantry leader. And so how how is it that um, when you think about Saratoga, of course, we all know Horatio Gates was in command at Saratoga. But as you study Saratoga better, you realize that Arnold and Morgan are really probably the ones that should get the credit for what happens up there. So what is it that Morgan does on the battlefield um, that fall to to really uh, secured an American victory and, and, and you know, one of the first turning points, so to speak, of the revolution. Uh, Nate, do you want to? Yeah, I'll, I'll, again, I'll leave you. Okay. I mean, when it's coming to the military, I, I definitely, <laughs> you're more the military guy, so I, I well, I'm, 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 I will admit I'm not the Saratoga expert. If Eric Schnitzer is <laughs> watching tonight, I apologize for anything I say, Eric. Um, <laughs> so, um, the first battle of Saratoga, you know, the Battle of Freeman's Farm, uh, Morgan and his men are going to be heavily engaged there. Uh, they are going to be extremely aggressive on the battlefield. They are going to really hit the British advance um, very, very hard. And they're actually going to try and charge and break the British. And what they find is, like I said, you know, you're at a disadvantage when your enemy has... Um, first of all, a weapon that can fire much more rapidly at close range, and second of all, when they have bayonets to back up their battle lines. So the, the fight at Freeman's Farm, Morgan and his riflemen are going to be pushed back and forth across the battlefield repeatedly. Um, you know, they're going to take a heavy toll on the British, particularly among the officers, but it's not the decisive break that Morgan is really looking for. That's going to happen at the Battle of Bemis Heights, you know, this is kind of the second Battle of Saratoga. And that's when Morgan and his riflemen are going to fight in conjunction with Henry Dearborn's light infantry. Now, these are Continental Light Infantry that are armed with muskets and bayonets. So when it comes to the close quarter fighting, when the British advance, you know, they're, they have backup, essentially. And this is going to become kind of the standard tactic for riflemen in both the American and the British Army during the Revolutionary War, is you're going to Kind of combine arms a little bit here. You have riflemen who can cause damage at long range. They're going to hit 
you know, high value targets, officers, artillerymen, you know, anyone on a horseback, you know, they're going to kill General Frazier at, uh, at Saratoga. That's going to be one of the major turning points of the battle. Um, but when it comes time to, to engage the enemy at close range, you do have musket armed troops and guys with bayonets there uh, to assist the riflemen. And that is going to kind of be the, the modus operandi moving forward for both armies. Right. And, and it's, it's so interesting when you, when you go to Saratoga and you visit Saratoga that, you know, his, their movements and actions up there are pretty well documented. And, um, you know, until you really visit that battlefield, you really get a understanding for all the events, you know, and what's going on up there and, and um, how much, and I know we're not talking about Bennett Arnold tonight, that was a few weeks ago, but Arnold is such, plays such a huge role um, up there. And um, of course, that is the only place you can find any monument to Bennett Arnold. So um, if you got, if anyone has not been to Saratoga, I highly recommend it. So it's a beautiful, beautiful park and the Hudson Valley is beautiful in, in New York. So it's definitely worth the trip. But after Saratoga, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, uh, Morgan, um, feeling a little bit slighted by Congress. Um, can uh, Nathan or, or it could be Nathan or Travis talk about a little bit because he kind of takes, you know, Morgan disappears from the scene for a little while. Um, obviously his health, as you guys have been talking about, it's pretty bad off and on, but there's also some hurt feelings there he has after Saratoga. And we won't see him really again until South Carolina. So someone can kind of talk about uh, some of those, some of that uh, drama that, that, Morgan went through with with Congress. Well, I think it was the I think Saratoga was I don't think it was exclusively Saratoga that led to this trauma. I think the Saratoga was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, look at everything he was called upon to do. Look at the look at the march he made from Winchester to Cambridge. Look at the everything what he was asked to do in Quebec against the worst odds. Then coming back to Saratoga in that unbelievable feat, doing everything that was asked of him and still not getting that recognition. And to him, like we've talked about before, recognition was everything. Being recognized for somebody that the, I don't wanna say the elite, but somebody who was this real hero. He just wanted to be, get that recognition from those above him because that's all he sought his entire life. And here's his chance, He had, what else could he do? Saratoga was this mag, I mean, just gigantic event. And I think at this point, he's just saying, well, <laughs> I've given everything I've, other than my life, I've given everything that you've asked of me and I'm still not getting, he, it was still that slight. It was still though all those reasons that he got into those bar fights when he was younger, all those reasons why he, he knocked out the British officer knowing good and well what the punishment was going to be. He just wanted to have that recognition. And I think that's exactly what this was. And so, yes, he did return home for a lot of health reasons, but there were those hurt feelings too. Uh, yeah. There was a sense it's like, look, I, I've done all you've asked and I want to be more than just, you know, just a, just somebody you can throw at somebody and forgotten about. Yeah, I mean, when the Continental Army forms light infantry formations and they pass him over for command, they give the command mm -hmm. to Anthony Wayne, that's a slap in the face to Morgan. You know? he's, he's commanded this provisional organization that's that's essentially doing that and he's excelled at it and command goes to anthony wayne someone who he really did not have have any good feelings towards um <laughs> we can get into that later um and i mean that's a huge slap in the face and and like nate said the approval from from the people above him and particularly washington yeah. the approval from washington matters so much to him 
and and I think it, he was deeply hurt on a personal level um, and, and professional. I, yeah, and I think he, he's he also in the 18th century he also recognizes that whole what we were talking about at the beginning of the talk is that there really are you either have made it or you have not. You were born into it or you marry into it. And if you're born or married into it, then you have you with those same connections. So getting passed over, I think was that slight like, oh, well, clearly they know him on another level, even though I'm clearly more experienced. I'm clearly the right choice. Look at my resume. So yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. What was his relationship with Washington? Did he have one? Was there... I want to say respect. I mean, that's exactly what I was going to say. I think there was some mutual respect there in a lot of ways. I mean, Washington first took note of him on the road to Fort Duquesne. You know, he was there. I mean, if you think of all of it's like a who's who on that path and in Braddock's, you know, during Braddock's March, there's like a, there's a lot of people there that uh, you took note of exactly what happened there. And I think more than it, like Travis said, more than anyone else, Morgan wanted Washington's approval. Washington was the commander. He wanted his approval. But Washington, while recognizing that he wasn't of his status, he did recognize that Morgan was somebody that he desperately needed in the field. Yeah, it's, you know, um, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, most of the war, pretty much the entire war, Morgan, even though Washington is the commander in chief of the army, Morgan's never really fighting under Washington all that much. Right. right. You know, I mean, yeah, outside of Monmouth, which he really doesn't take a huge right. role in. Right. No. He's not really, yeah, he's not there. He's not under Washington's eye. And I always wonder if his relationship with Gates hurts him a little bit with Washington, you know, because there's a continual issue that Washington Gates has, which doesn't really blow up really badly until later in the war, but you always wonder, um, you know, the whole situation with Gates and, and Washington and how Morgan maybe have gotten in the middle of that just by accident. Um, so Morgan goes home, right? So um, he's, he's claiming health issues, which I'm sure are valid, but I think most of it is because of hurt feelings. And as I mentioned before, um, Horatio Gates convinces him to come back and uh, Gates convinces Congress to give him an appropriate commission. And, you know, takes Morgan some time to get down to uh, North Carolina. He doesn't make it in time for Camden, as we've already talked about. Uh, he does get there um, as Gates is still in command, but Gates' days are numbered. And, of course, Nathaniel Green takes over. Um, and as Nathan, I think, said earlier, he becomes a really confidant for Green uh, and, you know, seeks out his advice constantly and, and tries to, you know, get his input on whatever Green's deciding to do strategically. Uh, Green's a great study in his own right. You know, I mean, he he wins the South without winning a battle, which is uh, <laughs> pretty amazing <laughs> in its own right. But um, so let's talk about cow pens. And I know, Nathan, you said you're not a military guy, but South Carolina. This is your backyard. Buddy. I mean, this, this is, is my backyard. Right here. I know it's oh, I know yeah. it's I know it's northern well, South Carolina, it's but it's still South Carolina. Hey, it's still you know, South. So still what it is. Yeah, you know, and and we won't we won't bring in the Patriot the movie and all the all the different. Yes, please um, don't. I would just. <laughs> that was a few weeks ago, but um, <laughs> of of depictions of how Cal Pens is fought. But talk about you know you don't have to get in, in a deep military aspect. Talk about mm -hmm. Morgan's uh, strategy there. You know, it's 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 made pretty famous and it's used again by Green later on. Yeah. So basically, I mean, you're looking. You have to put in perspective where the war is at at this point. It, Camden was a big defeat. 
Gates has been relieved. It's it's not looking good. And suddenly you've got the Battle of Cowpens. This is looking like this is this should be the decisive battle. This is the nail in the coffin. And then this the rebels are done with. But Morgan employs a very different strategy of the pincher, like I like to call a pincher strategy, where it's the send some guys up, fire away, and then run. Like get the shot off and then run. And then the next guy's up, fire and then run. And then basically it's sort of that belief that, oh, we've got them on the run. And as the redcoats are chasing them, suddenly these pinchers are forming around them and they're almost completely encircled. And thus there's the strategy there that helps turns the tide. Like all of a sudden, what was supposed to be a, a simple cakewalk for the Redcoats turns into a blistering defeat, an unexpected defeat that shakes the entire British army to the point like, wait, wait, this, what? How did this happen? And that suddenly alters the course of events for the next, you know, for the rest of the war. And it's that militia, uh, mm-hmm. you know, putting, knowing what to do with, with uh, the, the militia in the sense, not, not asking too much of them, right? right? Like, you know, don't expect what Gates expected in the Camden, right? They're not right. going to be able yeah. to, uh, you know, he's, he's going around, I think the night before Travis talking to the guys in camp and, you know, telling them what he expects them to do. And I think there's a mutual respect among these militia units and, and Morgan because he's telling them, all you got to do is this. And after that, you know, let, let the regular, let the continentals take care of it. Right. Um, yeah. Morgan, Morgan doesn't really have a whole lot of respect for the militia's fighting ability. Um, so, you know, he's going to have these three lines with this militia out front, just fire once, fire twice, and then pull back. And like Nathan said, that's going to draw the British in until they smack face first into that third line, which is Continental Army veterans. And they're going to tie them up as the militia regroups and, as Nathan mm-hmm. said, really envelops them. And, you know, Cowpens is, in, in my estimation, the most complete American victory of the war. Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. They, they really, the, the defeat of Tarleton changes the entire nature of the war in the South. And it's going to start the chain reaction that sends Cornwallis to Yorktown eventually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally so, changes Cornwallis' strategy. With that, with that in Kings Mountain, right? I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. Cornwallis right is totally, yeah. totally, and, and and of course, also keep in mind we haven't talked about Tarleton, but you know, defeating Tarleton, who um, is hated by many in the South, even though I think a lot of that has been inflated by the Patriots, which for good reason. But anyways, we can talk about it, that some other time. <laughs> yes, but they they're they're, they're they're using that they're using that uh, as a as a motivator, but to right. defeat Tarleton. Um, is is uh, a big boost to the Patriots in South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, which had suffered greatly up until Kings Mountain and Calpins. Um, so after Calpins, uh, what happens to Morgan? I mean, you know, we don't really talk about many other military activity with Morgan. Um, you know, for, for the the amateur uh, historian with Rev War, they read the books, they get the Calpins, and then you go to Guilford Courthouse and you go to Yorktown, and you don't really. Don't really think about anymore. Morgan. No. Yeah, so he's, he's the health again. It's it's the health that's gotten to him. As I mentioned before, he's got fever. He's got the sciatica. He has piles. I mean, this is he can barely stand at this point. And he has. I mean, you know, he has to be feeling pretty ill if Daniel Morgan, who is as you everybody has been hearing here, is one of the toughest SOBs 
to have ever walked the earth. And if he's saying, I have to go home, I, I'm really ill, you know, it's pretty bad. And so he's, he's gone back home while the rest of the war is happening. And I think that later in his life may have, that's probably sat on him as something that he wishes he could have been a part of, like the, at the bat, at least the battle of Yorktown to be there, to see it all the way through. Uh, no, I think he was, he knows how much, um, his contributions meant, but not being able to be there at the end, I think that's probably something that really bothers him later in life. Yeah, I mean, he's he's involved so briefly in the Yorktown campaign. He's involved like briefly in, in crushing Claypool's rebellion, which right. is like right. loyalist rebellion out in what is now West Virginia. Yeah, no, he wasn't but, one of the front lines kind of right there. At the, no, yeah, exactly. No. Yeah, the, his military commands after this are, are pretty minor. Um, there, yeah. It's amazing because well, he's mid forties at this point. I think mm-hmm. uh, you know. I think he's forty five, forty six, uh, and he's just you know. I'm forty four and I can't get up in the morning because I haven't done any <laughs> of the stuff this guy's done. So it's it's pretty amazing. But you know, he's he's in our time he'd be considered generally young. Um, but he's, you know, he's had such a hard life, and um, if you think about everything he went through just in the war itself, you know, it explains a lot about why he's in and out. Um, so let's talk about his post-war life. Um, you know, uh, and this is where we're going to rely on Nathan a little bit, since Nathan actually manages one of, of Morgan's properties here in Clark County, Virginia. Uh, and feel free to, to promote that, Nathan, as you talk oh, yeah. about. But what? So Morgan does he does he fully retire? How active does he stay in politics? I mean, there's a whole kinds of there's a, there's a it's a big big question there. But um, just yeah. to kind of well, talk about his post-war. He does so. When you think of Daniel Morgan after the Revolutionary War, it's not like his military career just ended. But before I get to that, I will say that, you know, during this time between 1779 and 1782, his house, Saratoga, is being built. And you know, hence the name that kind of shows that reverence he's had for his military actions and his contributions. I mean, named, his other house was named Soldier's Rest. So you know, his military participation meant everything to him. And so 1782, Saratoga's finished right in Clark County. Also in 1782, right down the roads, uh, his friend Nathaniel Burrell, who was of the Tidewater elite, who's moved, like with many who moved up into what is now Clark County, the, uh, he was building Carter Hall and he was building the Burrell Morgan Mill, which was started being built in 1782, was finished in 1785. And Daniel Morgan was, for all intents and purposes, the first mill manager. He oversaw all the daily operations. He oversaw all the personnel. He brought in people. He trained them. His experience working in a sawmill really paid off because when he was younger because at the time there was a sawmill attached to the Borough Morgan Mill. And so he knew how to run a sawmill. He had had that experience working in there. He had experience working with people. His experience as a teamster as Wagner also helped because all everything being ground there at the mill, loaded on those wagons, developed those connections to know where to send those onto those barges down the Shindo River. He was also really instrumental in shaping roads, getting roads passed and set in Clark County, roads that we still travel today. Uh, the current road between White Post and Boyce, which is what we know as, as uh, Highway 340 right now, Daniel Morgan. That's, you can thank Daniel Morgan for that path, the road from Boyce to Berryville, the road from, from Millwood to down to the Shenandoah River. 
that was Daniel Morgan. So he was very instrumental in shaping a lot of the roads that we drive on today. So that was some of his life on the home front. He was asked to go back out again uh, during the Whiskey Rebellion. Mm-hmm. And he this is when he got the status of Brigadier General. And he went back out. Um, interestingly enough, he put down a rebellion without having to fire a single shot. Uh, <laughs> one, of the, one of my favorite stories is that on the way, they stop at a tavern. This is in 1794. They stop at a tavern and the uh, tavern keeper is trying to sell whiskey to Morgan soldiers for a dollar per gallon, which at the time was astronomical. Morgan comes in and at this time he's mid 50s, 56 years old. And he comes in, basically shatters the tavern keeper's jaw and his men have all the whiskey they want whiskey yeah. that they want so he still got that toughness about him and it's it's again it, it's in this part of his life especially during the revolutionary war and onward the toughness is there and when called upon he is not afraid to show it or use it uh so he was still very very active he was in congress as well so i mean he was still getting he was still being active in every way that he can and he finally did after all this time he finally got that medal that he's so sought um and it coming from washington was probably that was probably the the single greatest thing now we could out and i'll defer to travis on more of this because there's also some things post-war about daniel morgan that were probably a little bit of a stain on his stain on his career especially when it comes to the military certificates yeah so one of the questions we got asked when we did this program a few weeks ago was you know why don't people remember morgan as well today you know why is he not the household name and you know as nathan kind of alluded to at the end of his his life there are a few things that were kind of held against him and and probably the biggest was involved military certificates you know during the revolutionary war congress has next to no money to pay anyone so they're issuing what are essentially IOUs to soldiers for pay or for land bounties, things like that. And you know, in the decades after the revolution, Congress is struggling to come up with the money to actually make good on these. And so what you see a lot of people do, including Daniel Morgan, is they're gonna buy up these, these IOUs for like pennies on the dollar. Uh, for for a, a soldier, you know, your average private veteran of the war, hard cash up front is worth a lot more than an IOU that might get paid 10 years from now. So he's going to get involved with the buying up of these military certificates. And that's really seen as taking advantage of these men, um, you know, and, and veterans who had fought under him. And it really kind of, it, it gives him a, a black eye, at least in the, in the court of public opinion. I think the other thing that really works against him is we, we mentioned he, he served in Congress. He's going to serve in Congress um, as a federalist. And by the time he dies, you know, it's Jefferson's, you know, Jefferson is president. The Democratic Republicans are controlling the entire government, essentially. So he dies at a time when his political beliefs are really on the outs with a lot of people. And I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, not to say that he wasn't celebrated. I mean, any 19th century, early 20th century history of the revolution is going to prominently feature Morgan. You look at the painting of Saratoga, you know, Morgan's there front and center. You look, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of reverence for Morgan. 
lot of places named after Morgan, you know, Morgan County, West Virginia. Um, trying to think of there's a there's a Morgan County somewhere down south, too, in there. Um, maybe Mississippi or something. Oh, there's, there's also there's also Morgantown, West Morgantown, Virginia. Morgantown, yeah, West Virginia. West Virginia University. Um, um, Spartansburg has a monument to him uh, mm -hmm. there, Daniel Morgan. Right. Um, so yeah, so I think you know, like you said, the memory of him is you know, what you guys mentioned there uh, about the, uh, the the semi scandal, and of course being a Federalist in Virginia at that point in time really wasn't probably the most popular political choice. Um, so that probably definitely did hurt how he was remembered by the immediate people right after him. But so. Uh, where, where does he die? Because, you know, there's lots of, he owns lots of houses. Uh, we talked about Saratoga. And I think Travis got to see Saratoga recently. was highly, highly jealous of that, by the way. Uh, it's a private home. I've, uh, for those watching, it's a beautiful home, but it's private. And Travis was able to see the outside of it, which is, which is very, which very cool. But where, where, is he, where does he die? He doesn't die at Saratoga, correct? No, he doesn't die. Where, he, uh, honestly, <coughs> you want to take, sorry. <coughs> Get well, Nathan a beer. Morgan will die at his daughter's house in Winchester, Virginia. Um, mm. Yeah. So he dies there in is 1804, right? 1804, yeah. 1804. Mm -hmm. And he's uh, buried in Winchester. Yes. Now he was, uh, his last few years of his life, yeah, he was at his daughter's house. He was, all those medical ailments were really starting to come back. Uh, he, there was a doctor tending to him basically every day uh, the last year of his life. Uh, and that's where we get a lot of these. His doc, the doctor talked about some of the items he talked about. That's where he found out, the, talked about the lashes that were on his back, talked about the broken toe. And he says, you had this broken toe your whole life. Like it was very bad. And he says, oh yeah, I kicked a guy at a, at a tavern in Barrio. Battletown. Tavern at Battletown. Barry's Battle Tavern in Battletown. Yeah. And so uh, Battletown got that name largely for Danny Morgan, probably. So, <laughs> um, but yeah. And, but in any, the doctor would also try to get out of him. Like, look, your time is short. What kind of things would you like to tell me about your life? He says, I really don't want to talk about anything. So even then, he still was a bandit kept to himself. Um, but there, like I said, there are just, it's, it's some of the things that you see that you know by the end of his life as i mentioned before he had 125,000 acres several houses he had two daughters that married off into wealthy families he saratoga had seven mirrors and for the 18th century having one mirror that's pretty impressive he had seven yeah so it, it's like the socks it's like uh, he just mirrors and can't socks. have enough of yeah mirrors and socks that to him that was a way to show he his status it's a great uh title for a biography on morgan mirrors, mirrors and socks. And socks. <laughs> so um i have a couple we're gonna wrap up here shortly i got two questions from the chat but the first thing i'm going to ask you guys is places people can go today uh what we try to do a lot of times is, is take history so people can go actually see these places that exist I'm going to let Nathan go first since he actually manages one of these places. That's right. I would say top the list. You got to go to the Burl Morgan Mill in Millwood, Virginia. It's right off Highway 50. The mill is still there. It's still an operational mill. It's still operating just like it would have in Morgan's Day, except we don't grind the 100,000 or so pounds a year. We maybe <laughs> grind 3,000 pounds a year. Um, but we still use the stones the same way, the water wheel, water powered. Um, you can also walk the grounds that 
he was was there on. I mean, their blacksmith shop was across the street where the sawmill used to be. Um, the the blacksmith shop actually used to be a tavern. Used to, the dry goods store used to be across the street. So there's a lot of Morgan's presence can be felt in Saratoga. Why you won't be able to see it? It was right down the road. I mean, it was just literally right down the road. So and you'll be driving on roads that Morgan helped uh, put in place that we still drive on a day. So that that would be the number one place I would absolutely say. <laughs> and I, I believe his daughter's house that he passed away in is still standing too, correct? It still is, standing. Yes. It's on uh, Amherst Street in, in Winchester, um, not far from his original gravesite and his current gravesite. Um, Morgan was originally buried at the old stone Presbyterian church in Winchester. Uh, there's a, a monument, kind of a life-size statue of him uh, at the church. And then you just go kind of a block away to the Mount Hebron Cemetery, and there you'll see his his current grave, which has a really nice marker that was put mm -hmm. up a few years ago. Um, yeah, those are those are great, really kind of local sites for Morgan, where he lived most of his life. You also obviously have the National Park Service that manages Saratoga and the Battle Cal Calpins National Battlefield, sure. which obviously tell uh, those stories. Um, Travis, is there anything in Quebec for Morgan? I know there's a plaque for Montgomery, but is there anything in Quebec? I hate to put you on the spot here, but you're yeah, my Quebec guy. Oh my gosh. Um, so I've, I've driven and hiked a lot of the route that they took. Um, I, I won't claim to have done it in the middle of winter. Uh, but on your way up, um, one of the best ways to see this is to drive Route 201 through Northern Maine. And there are plaques that were put up um, by either DAR or SAR um, that mark some of the points along the trail that they took, um, which is really cool. In Quebec City itself, oh geez, I'm drawing a blank because I know, Sorry. like I said, there's there's a plaque to where Richard Montgomery is killed. Right. Um, I, I can show you the location where the barricade <laughs> is in the lower town, but um, I'm not, I don't remember if there's a, a plaque there or not. Okay, um, that's fine. I put you in the spot there, so yeah. I apologize. It's been 10 years since I've been to Quebec, so it's... <laughs> uh, uh, one question someone has asked us in the chat, does anyone know about or can you expand the, about his illegitimate son that supposedly he had? True story, not a true story? It's uh, a question. Well, <laughs> I, let's just say, I, I would certainly say that it's uh, plausible. Uh, Willoughby was Willoughby, his, yes. Yeah, Willoughby was his illegitimate son. I mean, it's certainly plausible. If you think about it, it's... South Carolina, right? And uh, he lived in South Carolina, correct? Uh -huh, that's true. Yeah, he lived in South Carolina. He... Um, I mean, you, you got to think this is, if you look at Morgan's early life until he met Abigail Curry, yeah, he did love the ladies. The ledgers prove it. There were ladies coming in to the same store, getting stuff on his credit um, while he was seeing Abigail Curry. So it's certainly plausible. I, I, let's just put it that way. In my opinion, okay. Yeah. yeah. Somebody just asked about it. And the other question and our last thing is favorite book or source of information on Morgan um, that you all would recommend. I have one here. It's an older book, but it's Higginbottom's that's Morgan's biography. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the old classic. Um, yeah. I highly recommended. Um, but I know Nate and I are both fans of a new biography that came out. I don't, I actually probably have it on the shelf. Yeah. It is uh, Dan, Daniel Morgan, A Revolutionary Life by okay. uh, Z um, Zamboni. What is his first name? Um, Albert Zamboni. Yes. 
that one is. Oh yeah, I have seen that. Okay. It's uh, I, I highly recommend it. It's an easy read. It's um it's very quick. It's very I like the way I like the style that it's written. You don't even have to be a fan of history to read that and really appreciate it. I think okay. this could be people who just had maybe have a passing interest. This would be a this is a fantastic read. Uh, it really gets to the point of who he was, what his life. So I think it really paints a great picture using a lot of primary sources of what his life really was like. Right. Yeah, very okay. complete look at his life. You know, mm -hmm. it doesn't focus entirely on his military career. Right. Um, so I, you know, either of those books you can't go wrong. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Thank you, guys. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. It's 8.05. I'm a little bit late, but, um, you know, uh, you guys, have, we got great viewership tonight considering we're up against football. So, uh, you know, it is that time of year. Um, I want to remind everyone watching, join us next week, same time, 7 o'clock. Uh, we're interviewing Michael Harris. His new book on Germantown is out, and we'll be talking about his new book on the Battle of Germantown. Of course, Michael is known for his book on Brandywine. Uh, so uh, we'll have him here next week at seven o'clock. And also, if you want to see Travis again next year at our symposium that we're doing with the city of Alexandria on May 22nd, um, Travis will be one of our speakers. Fingers crossed that we can yeah. get back to something of normal uh, presentations and, and symposiums by next May. But if you want interested in tickets, tickets are on our website, on our Facebook page, or you can go to the City of Alexandria's website as well. So thank you, gentlemen. Good to talk to you guys as always. Have a good night. And thank you, everyone, for watching. And take care. Thank you, Thanks Rob. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks.